morning, everyone. Good to be together this morning. I wore this so you'd know that that's not fake news. There's no conspiracy theory here. This is the real me. That was the real me with a real message. And honestly, uh, I've said to people who I've led through uh, vocational transitions here at Bethany, it, it should never be viewed ever as a win-lose thing, but God's will is always a win-win for everybody involved. And I believe that this is a win for Bethany, a win for me, and a win for you. And I'll tell you why I'm excited in several ways. First of all, I personally am excited to focus on teaching and preaching both here at Green Lake and as well at conferences where I speak and also with the Torchfire community with whom I've been affiliated for longer than Bethany, for 30 years now. So I'll continue to do all three of those things. Excited to continue at Bethany, contributing to discipleship, ancient paths ministry, and mentoring our lead pastors as we gather as a teaching team at various times. I'm also excited that I'll be here at Green Lake on a regular basis, still preaching. And I'm also looking forward to exploring some kind of new venues of ministry. There's some writing I'd like to do, and I'm also prayerfully considering a ministry of coaching and formation that uh, I think my years of experience could provide for other people. And I'm very excited for Scott. I believe that he is uniquely qualified to lead Bethany through this season. I can't express to you strongly enough his love, not only for the local church, but for Bethany in particular, and Bethany as a whole. And he has a vision for that that excites me. So that's also very good news. Uh, You'll have a chance to meet Scott in two weeks, because he'll be here preaching. And uh, he wants to meet all of you face-to-face. Also, uh, he'll continue to be the lead pastor at North in the same manner in which I've, I've led Green Lake while also carrying the mantle of senior pastor. Scott will remain at North. So all that's very, very good news, and uh, I look forward to our days ahead and this new chapter that God will be writing in the life of Bethany Community Church. Now let's turn to the scripture, which I'll read, and then I'll pray, and then we will begin a new series entitled One Another as we think about what it means to live together in community. Uh, listen as I read. Romans 12, 3 through 5, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one. Just as each of us has a single body with many members, right? Uh, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have these moments together today. Thank you for your remarkable faithfulness to Bethany for 106 years. It's mercy and grace, and we receive it with gratitude. Uh, We pray for this next season, but in particular now, as we turn our hearts to the Scripture, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us about this high calling to display uh, an interrelatedness and solidarity and unity. For we stand in an immensely fractured world. So would you be our teacher this morning, 
and not only enable us to hear, but enable us to respond. You know, you might shape us for your purposes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, there are always forces in any culture that serve to isolate and divide any given culture. I mean, any uh, reading of history tells us this. And in our own culture, of course, most recently, COVID has been at the forefront of a dividing force. It's mandated social isolation. That isolation has led to, uh, you know, an increase in domestic violence, depression, uh, murder rates across our country. It's also led to an online tribalism intensified by conspiracy theories about everything. And this growing isolation and tribalism has been fed as well by the fact that we now live in a, in a world of social media who, if you uh, looked at 60 Minutes last week, you might be suspicious that social media celebrates our divisions and feeds our divisions, right? And this causes fractured relationships. And online, many of us, and I've been guilty of this, have been rude, cynical, and mocking in ways we would never be in person, leading to hurt feelings and further isolation. So it's kind of, in a way, a terribly divisive time to be alive. But if we fly a little higher and we look at history, we realize it's it's not new. There's nothing new here. In 2000, Robert Putnam wrote a book that kind of became a classic entitled Bowling Alone. And the thesis of that book was that after World War II, since 1950, as Americans have grown in prosperity, our prosperity has fed our rugged individualism and created further and further isolation. And out of our isolation, there has been a remarkable growth in uh, tribalism, right? And that book... Uh, was quickly followed up on with a book called Affluenza, the thesis of which is that an unintended and negative byproduct of wealth, and wealth isn't inherently bad, but a negative byproduct of wealth is the ease with which we can divide and fragment as a culture. And I know it's true when I think about my own kind of life and the times in which I've lived. Back in the 60s, my my family could only afford a two-bedroom house, so I spent many years in the same bedroom as my sister, you know, and uh, there were three television stations. Some of you are old enough to remember this, right? And I remember day in the 60s. Remember, I grew up in California. Remember, I was born in Oakland. I remember day in the 60s when the Oakland Raiders were playing, and they were on TV at the same time as The Wizard of Oz, which was only shown once a year. And uh, my sister and my mom unimaginably wanted to watch The Wizard of Oz when the Raiders were on TV. And we couldn't isolate and go to two rooms. There's one TV. We couldn't watch it later. There's no DVR. The only thing we could do, can you imagine this, is to settle and get along. And, and somehow we did. And I will confess to you, I don't even, I don't even remember who won the game. <laughs> so I'll just say that. And uh, let you know that today, I mean, if I was at your house last night and you were like this, hey, let's watch the Sounders, I'd, be, I'd say fine. And then I'd go in the bedroom and I'd open my iPad and watch the San Francisco Giants, my beloved team from my childhood. And then I'd be sorry I watched them because they got trounced, but whatever. It's, be, it's beside the point here this morning. So um, 
we live in this time of social isolation and fragmentation and division. And I want to let you know, it's getting worse and worse and worse in the culture. But I also want to let you know, that's the culture. That's always been the culture. That will always be the culture. The culture inflames division. The culture creates tribalism. The culture creates culture wars. The culture fights culture wars. Both sides feed off the antagonism and divisiveness of the other. It's happened since time immemorial. Here's the problem. The church is called to rise above it. And instead, I will speak bluntly right now and say to you, we're not rising above it. We are reflecting within evangelical Christianity, the exact same polarization, the exact same division, the exact same tribalism, and it has to stop. Why? Because Jesus said in John 17, the defining moment of credibility for the church will be what? It's unity. And to the extent that we divide over masks and vaccines and who won the election, and capitalism, and socialism, and, and, and political parties, and race, when we divide over these things, friends, I want you to know, it's terrible because we have nothing to offer our world that's already divided. The one thing we can say is God is creating a community that transcends the polarization and tribalism and division of the world. It's essentially the main message of the Bible. So we really have to get this right, and we're not getting it right right now at all. So now as uh, hopefully COVID, the COVID plane lands and we begin to re-engage, we're doing a series here for the next several weeks between now and Advent about the one another's in the Bible so that we can once again exercise that muscle, love one another, serve one another, speak truth to one another, forgive one another, encourage one another. We'll be looking at all of those, but today's kind of the overview of the importance of one another and particularly the importance of unity. Making unity and community visible will only happen to the extent that our life is built upon the three key premises that I articulate this morning. First premise, we're all connected in Christ and by Christ. Second premise, we all have a contribution to make to the body of Christ. Third, there's a dance of giving and receiving that's vital to a healthy body. So we want to see those three things together. Let's start here. We're all connected in Christ and by Christ. This is the message essentially in Galatians 4 and in Ephesians 2 articulated by the Apostle Paul. In Galatians 4, remember what Paul says? He says, now because of Christ, uh, I have the DNA of Christ, so to speak. So does my friend Carly here in the second row. And, and so does my friend Diane over here in the first row. We all share that DNA. And because of that, remember what it says in Galatians 4? There's therefore now in Christ, the things that divide us don't divide us anymore. There's therefore now no longer male-female divisions, uh, Gentile-Jew uh, divisions, slave-free divisions. And we could, of course, expand that in our culture today. There's therefore now in Christ, hear me, in Christ, there's therefore now no Republican Democrat, no black, white, no rich, poor, no vax, anti-vax, mask, anti-mask. Why? Because the thing that unites us is intended by God to always, 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 always be greater than the things which divide us. So like we share this DNA, that's supposed to be enough. Really important that we see it. Why? Because God's intent 
all the way back to Genesis 12 was this. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through the people of God as they display the character of God, which can only be displayed when the 12 tribes of Israel get along and are united. And of course, if you know your Old Testament, and some of you do, and some of you uh, may not, it's okay. But if you know that, then you know that uh, in the Bible, in the history of God's people, Israel was at her weakest when she was divided. And it happened a couple of times. Uh, 2 Samuel 3, the house of Saul was at war with the house of David. So now, rather than serving and blessing the surrounding nations, what's happening? The, the house of Saul and the house of David are at war with one another over who's the legitimate king. And imagine this, both kings building their power base by vilifying the other side. Have you ever heard of that happening? That's the culture we live in, of course, right? And so here's the two kings there, and, and, and all of Israel's testimony is quote-unquote put on hold because we got to fight a war. And then it happens again when uh, the, there's, a, there's a king of the north and a king of the south, and the king of the north becomes the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, and the, and the, and the, and the king of the south becomes the two tribes in the line of David and the, and the, uh, the, the Judean kingdom, and there, a civil war, and the, and the kingdom divided. And then when the kingdom divided, the north became a victim of Assyrian genocide. And the south became a victim of Babylonian captivity. And the nation of Israel, the light of the world, boom, gone. <laughs> Till 1948. But where did it start? Division. Internal infighting. Like spending all our energy vilifying the southern kingdom, or the house of Saul, or the house of David. No, that's not our calling. So if we have this DNA, then we suffer together, we rejoice together, and we share life together. I... uh, I was on a Zoom call Tuesday night with the original search committee who interviewed me and ultimately recommended me for this role to share the news that you saw in the video. And we just spent some time thinking about the reality that we've kind of walked together for 26 years through, you know, weddings, funerals, the birth of children, the death of children, the death of parents, And I promise you that on that call, uh, not everybody voted the same. And not everybody has the same view on vaccinations or environmental stewardship or the extent to which healthcare should be public or private or how to address the agreed-upon problem of race in America. We We don't all agree. But we agree on one thing. Jesus is Lord. And I'm telling you, and I can't say it strongly enough, that should be enough. Should be enough. It, it, but it isn't right now. In many places in our country, it's not. And so the church is dividing. And then if you wonder why there are fewer, you know, Gen Y and Z and whatever is coming next, do we go back to A, Jeff? I'm not even sure. But, uh, you know, if you're wondering, where are they? I'll tell you where they are. Not here. And if you wonder why, I'll tell you why. They're sick of our infighting among other things. 
and looking for people who can get along and share life in Christ and commit to shining as light and in the diversity of opinion that is gathered around that single mission, allow each other to be transformed. That's so vitally important. So in our world, there's left-right, conservative-liberal, centralized-decentralized, capitalist-socialist, rich-poor. These are divides, but divides are as old as time. And because we share the same spiritual DNA, Ephesians 4 says this in verse 3, a strong exhortation. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I'll unpack it. Preservation of unity requires diligence. doesn't happen accidentally. It requires hard conversations. It requires disagreeing and yet uh, exercising charity to those with whom you disagree. It requires willingness to sit at the table with people who voted differently, who think differently, who look differently. It absolutely requires that. That requires diligence. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And listen, the, it's unity of the Spirit, not uniformity of the political affiliation. It's unity of the Spirit. So be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, not uniformity. We won't all think together because we see through a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians 12. And as we'll see in this series, we can differ on lots of things and still hold us together because what unites us is Christ, not Christ plus our view on some particular thing. And we are presently, as evangelicals, on a trajectory that exactly mirrors the cultural division and polarization and infighting of our world, and we have to stop it. So it begins here. We, we're all connected in Christ and by Christ, so we share that spiritual DNA. And this is our basis, not for uniformity, but unity. Because the thing that holds us together is greater than the things that would otherwise divide us were we to adopt the cultural narrative. Second important principle, we all have contributions to make to this preservation of unity. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says it this way. Let me just turn there real quickly. Apostle Paul is talking about this kind of body analogy, which we'll get to in a moment, but this is what he says. He says, See, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, I want to pick up on this phrase, the common good, and invite you to think about this with me. And I want to, the way I'm going to illustrate this, this may come as shocking to you, but I'm going to illustrate this by calling you to consider a forest with me, okay? So how does a forest live together? Forests don't redline. <laughs> Forests don't put all the alders here, all the spruce here, all the fir here. Forests are integrated, not segregated. And, and why is that? Because watch this, a diverse ecosystem makes for a healthy forest. And the more diverse the ecosystem, actually, the healthier the forest. I live on a two-thirds of an acre forest, right? This little plot of land up at the pass. And so in preparation for the sermon, I kind of walked around and uh, identified what, what um, flora live on our property. We have fir trees. We have uh, like scrub alder, little alder trees. We have huckleberry. We have salmonberry. We have blueberry. We have... Uh, 
uh, cedar tree. We have hemlock trees, one cedar tree, hemlock trees. We have young trees, tiny little trees. We have a tree that's over 200 years old. We have trees that have died but aren't done giving because they're decaying and creating the soil. And then we have the mycelium network, uh, which in layman's terms are called mushrooms, right? Uh, that, are, that are sending messages from tree to tree. Now, if you geek out on this stuff, as I do, you realize that in the history of forestry, there was a time when forestry adopted the conventional wisdom of capitalism, which was, look, it's a, it's, there's a competition here for resources, and so we want to make sure that the trees that we want to thrive, thrive. So the best way to do that is to get rid of all the competition. You know what that's called? Clear-cutting. So we, we, we clear-cut a piece of property, and then we plant all spruces. Because spruce grows rapidly, becomes lumber that then I can turn around and sell to you for profit. Now, there's nothing wrong with profit. There's nothing wrong with spruce trees. But here's the thing. The fundamental, it's, a, it's a great argument if the fundamental premise is true that the trees are competing. Here's the problem. They're not competing. In fact, uh, the thinking was, let's get rid of the alders because the alders are hogging all the water. And then the spruce will grow more quickly. And in fact, initially, the spruce do grow more quickly. But to everyone's surprise, as this went on for a couple of decades... They grow more quickly, but they die younger. And then once you've logged that first generation and you replant spruce the second time around, they don't even make it to uh, log-worthy maturity before they die. And they came to discover, oh, do you know why? Because the alders that we thought were competition were actually absorbing more nitrogen from the soil and offloading that nitrogen through the mycelium network are you ready? To the spruce trees. The alders were helping the spruce thrive. Oh, and the spruce, which were going taller and faster than the alders and thus had more access to sunlight, the spruce were actually sharing what they gained from the sunlight through the mycelium network with the alders. So the alders are serving the spruce and the spruce are serving the alders. And the tree that has a chainsaw cut into it immediately begins to offload all of its carbon resources to all the surrounding trees before it crashes to the ground. And even after it crashes to the ground, as it decays, all of its nutrients will become the soil that feed the next generation. Listen, it is never, ever, ever competition for resources. It's interdependency. And the more diversity you have, the healthier the forest. And if it's true for a forest, it's true for a church. Amen? And if it's true for a church, it's true not just racially, it might be true, are you ready? Politically, and economically, and ideologically. So we got to get our mind around this, friends, because our call is not to adopt the cultural narrative that prevails of vilifying those across the aisle so that we feel morally superior and then withdraw into our tribal community echo chambers. Our calling is to be a diverse community who think differently, look differently, act differently, vote differently. Why? Because the thing that 
unites us is greater than the thing that divides us. And for me to grow into full maturity in Christ, I need your resources, i.e., I- <laughs> your ideology, your opinion, your spiritual gifts. We need each other to display the unity that is our calling. It's the last thing Jesus prayed for before he was executed on a cross, that we would be united so that the world would know that the message of Christ is credible. So we all have contributions to make, and that means we should celebrate diversity. In Romans 13 and 14, there aren't just different gifts among those who claim Christ as Lord. There are different views on a host of matters. In Paul's day, the differences had to do with a person's relationship with the Old Testament law and Jewish traditions, but today it's a host of other issues. And here's what Paul says. If you share faith in Christ and are committed to growth, we need you in the forest. We don't have to, we don't have to agree on our politics, on vaccination stuff, on mask stuff. We gotta, but, but we have to agree. If Jesus is Lord, we have a call to unity that will offer an alternative to the prevailing cultural narrative of division. And it's not only true that every gift matters, it's also true that no single gift matters more than other gifts. Paul articulates this in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning of verse 14. And he uses now not a forest, but a human body as a metaphor. He says, the body is not one member, but many. If a foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is actually still a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If the whole body were hearing, how would you smell? God has placed different members in the body, each one of them, as God desires, each contributing to the good of the whole, the common good. This means that the church is a collective display of Christ, not a store where you come and hear me and then go off and do your thing. We all have gifts to contribute. And this has been my message for 26 years. It's why as we grew as a church and started new locations, we quickly moved away from video venues and sought to raise up instead a new generation of leaders. It's why we call people to serve. And why last week I said, hey, find your gift and use it to bless others because every gift is vital. And to understand this, uh, perhaps those of you who are old enough in the room to remember dial-up internet, remember that that funky sound that came over the phone? Remember that? Remember that thing? And then if you're trying to download a picture, at first you get like, I don't know, 100 pixels for your picture. And you go, I have no idea what that is. And then you get, then you get a few more pictures, and you go, oh, it's a person. And you get a few more, and you go, oh, it's a woman. And then a few more, oh, she has a coffee cup. And then a few more, oh, it's my friend Carly. And then a few more, oh, she has a mask on. And why does she have a mask on? It's 1996. <laughs> but you understand the point, right? Like, every one of us have a contribution to make that clarifies the revelation of the character of Jesus. And so we all have gifts, and if you're not using your gifts, or if you're withdrawing into a self-referential community, then your gifts are no longer present, and if your gifts aren't present, we don't see Christ as clearly. Everybody has a gift to use. 
And then finally, as we bring this to a close, let's recognize that if we're going to be interrelated, there's a dance of giving and receiving that's vital to being a healthy body. In other words, I not only need to share my gifts, but I need to be willing to receive the gifts that you have to give me. Gifts are given, as we're told in the Scripture, for the edification of the whole, the building up of the whole. So use them. But also, and this I'm going to stress this for a moment here, also allow yourself to receive the gifts of others. And the reason that this needs stressing is because it's A, in our nature, to withdraw and not receive. It goes all the way back to the garden, right? Uh, when, when Adam uh, sins and then he sees that he's naked, what does he say? I was afraid, so I hid. Don't hide. If we share life in Christ, part of the reconciling work is that we have the privilege of knowing and being known. I'm convinced this is why Brene Brown's material on vulnerability is so popular. We have this kind of longing inside of us to be known, but we're also afraid to be known because we're afraid of rejection. I get it. In fact, in my own life, I would say at times it's been my kind of paradigm to, you know, put on a strong face and pretend everything's okay when everything's not okay. Some of that began to change for me years ago when our staff was smaller and we were sitting in a circle for a staff meeting. And my friend who's now passed away, Scott Becker, who was a pastor here on staff, he said in the context of the 10 or 12 of us sitting around a circle, he said, I'm not okay. I'm depressed. I'm dealing with depression. I just started seeing a counselor. Man, I don't think I'd ever heard a pastor say that. pastor that I grew up with was never not okay, right? And that vulnerability, I think, gave me courage to be more vulnerable as well so that I could receive what I need to receive that no one will give unless they know that I have a need. So be on ten in giving and receiving. You know, the difference between David and Saul in the Old Testament, David being the man after God's own heart, Saul being the guy who went crazy, the difference is David received rebuke and correction. Saul wouldn't. The difference between the prodigal son and the older brother is the prodigal son was able to receive forgiveness and restoration. The older brother could not receive grace and love. So I understand when I have something to give, I want to give it to you. I'm, I love what I do on Sundays. But also, when I, when I need to receive, I need to let you know, otherwise you can't give to me. And this is true across the fabric that is the tapestry of Bethany Community Church, the dance of giving and receiving. Um, some of you know this. I showed up at Bethany as a college student. And when I showed up, I, I'd come out of a Baptist background, and I was kind of on a vacation from God a little bit, actually. And part of the reason was I was so tired of the wagging of the finger. In my background, where I grew up, and not all Baptists wag, understand, but where I grew up, if you're a Catholic, not saved. 
clearly. If you're, if you're a Presbyterian, doubtful. I got to tell you, that's what I heard. And if you drank wine, no way are you a Christian. So with that background, you know, I moved to Seattle uh, after I left my studies of architecture. And my first Sunday at Bethany was in November of 1978. So almost 43 years ago. It will be 43 years ago next month. It was the Sunday after what, what historians call the Jonestown Massacre. And if you're, if you're too young to know it, a guy named Jim Jones had 900 followers who were, who were murdered, essentially, because he convinced them to drink poison. They believed a lie. And it, sh- it just shattered me. I was like this. How can this happen? How, like, how do people get so blind that they'll follow a leader of the grave that way? How's that happen? And so I came to church here, and uh, Bethany was holding a special class to debrief the Jonestown Massacre. It was held in the cafeteria across the street at Bagley Elementary School. I'll never forget it. So here's some of the things I learned in that class. Number one, don't believe everything any leader says because no leader's perfect. Don't believe everything any leader says. No leader's perfect. That's really good news. Number two, if, as soon as a leader lies, run away. Character matters in leadership. Number three, for Christians, keep the main thing the main thing. And what's the main thing? Looking more and more and more like Jesus. More loving, more kind, more gentle, more generous. And if, if your community of faith is not leading you toward that kind of love and kindness and generosity and gentleness, then... It's the wrong place. Listen, our world is divided. MSNBC, Fox, left, right, rich, poor, however you want to slice it, always will be. But what did Jesus say? My kingdom is what? not of this world. Don't be that. Don't, don't, let's not allow ourselves to be hijacked by that cultural narrative of division. Let's rise above it and declare what's kind of carved in wood out here in the foyer, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And what are the essentials? Jesus, period. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, that you call us into the both challenging and delightfully beautiful mandate to build a community where not everybody has the same view on anything other than one thing, that you, Jesus, are Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for the challenge of it. Thank you that it's not uniformity, but unity. Thank you that it requires diligence and the work of your spirit. And I just open my hands now and I pray that you would build a unity here that shines as light in the city of Seattle. And we'll thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.